This is an ABC podcast. Hey, it's Natasha Mitchell. This is Science Friction. And this show starts with a guy who you could say has rocks in his head. This all started back around 2011. That's when Carl Ag received a package. So I opened up the package. There was this black rock sitting there staring back at me. And the person who'd sent Carl that chunk of black rock? It was weird. It had reptile skin almost on it, like this alligator reptile skin. This guy was not your average rock collector. Oh, you mean you're talking about Jay Piatek? My name's uh, Dr. Jay Piatek, and first and foremost, I'm a physician. Although Jay isn't your average doctor either. He probably likes meteorites more than he likes being a medical doctor. If that's possible. I probably, back in those days, I had 1,400 meteorites. And this one was unlike any of them. Yep, we're talking meteorites, rocks from outer space. Jay had been in negotiations with a well-known trader in Morocco called Aziz Habibi over a meteorite that had caught his attention. He got it from a nomad that he paid probably little for, but then they mark it up and then I buy it. Well, I said, I'll take that one. And then he showed pictures of this one that was black. And it didn't look like anything in my collection. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll take that Black Beauty, just throw that one in. And that's how it became called Black Beauty. Eventually, Jay sent Black Beauty onto Carl Ag for identification, which is what he did with most of the rocks he bought. He would say, what is it? Carl's one of the world's most eminent meteorite scientists and director of the Institute of Meteoritics at the University of New Mexico, which holds a really large collection. It looked really strange. It looked quite different from other meteorites that I had studied up to then. So I didn't really know what to make of it. Now, with experience, even passionate amateur collectors like Jay can start to spot the difference between terrestrial rocks and rocks which might have crash-landed from outer space, say from the moon or from Mars or from a shattered asteroid. And so most meteorites are black because they have fusion crust. A fusion crust forms when the surface of a meteorite melts and cools as it enters Earth's atmosphere at high speed. But when you cut into it, they're white. They're light, you know, they're green, they're different colors. This thing was just total black, totally jet black. And really, only a qualified scientist with the right tools can determine whether a rock really is from outer space, not from Earth. And that matters because today, many space rocks are worth big bucks. This is a big and growing market. And so I was skeptical about it. I actually thought perhaps that it wasn't really a meteorite at all, that it was just some weird terrestrial rock that someone had found, some curiosity, you know. And so I gave it to Carl, I said, don't cut into it, but let me know what you think about it. And I forgot about it. Little did they know, the microscopic grains inside this chunk of rock would still be revealing incredible secrets to this day. Science Friction is back with all new shows for 2023. Cannot wait to bring you all sorts of hidden and human stories from science. And always love to hear from you with story ideas too. Email us at sciencefriction at abc.net.au. Over the next two shows, 320 grams of space rock is going to blow open a whole world of obsessive millionaires, Saharan desert nomads, passionate scientists, one way or another 
another, all in pursuit of the piece of a puzzle about how our solar system and us in it came to be. Now, the science alone is is pretty mind-blowing, but what I've discovered is the global marketplace for meteorites is a minefield too, full of intense competition, eBay auctions, geological geopolitics, and a cast of quirky collectors. I was a workaholic and I was addicted to like whatever I got into, I would go hard. And so we had four kids, me and my wife, she's my ex-wife now, but she gained about a hundred pounds. And she said, Jay, you need to go into weight loss. And I said, no way. I'm a real doctor, (laughs) but I'm a good husband. And so I went into weight loss. That's how Dr. Jay Piatek made his fortune. I kind of got lucky that my theories worked. I was a chemistry major in college. And I told my professors, I'm never going to use it. I'm going into medicine. And it turns out that everything I do in meteorites, a lot of it is chemistry. And then everything I do in weight loss turns out to be the chemistry of eating behavior. And he's seen 20,000 patients since. Jay does nothing by half measure. So when his son was working on a grade four science project on meteorites. And I said, meteorites? Typed in meteorites in the computer and I saw, wow, You can own those. You can own stuff from outer space. Jay says he has an addictive personality and before long he was amassing one of the largest private collections of meteorites in the world. Before me, there was a guy named Bob Haig that was just really extravagant kind of rock star, they called him, because he had real long hair, amazing personality. And he would go all over the world. He had some guy fund him. Basically, he became the market. That is until Jay joined the ranks of obsessive meteorite chasers. I have uh, like uh, storage areas and vaults and banks. And for some, this really is a chase. They're on the next plane straight after meteorite falls are reported, racing to get a first chunk. They even buy the stuff the rocks crash into, right? Letterboxes, uh, dog houses. Jay's got all sorts of paraphernalia in his collection. On, they had a Walt Disney bedspread in this little town called Pungur, Sumatra. And when it landed on it, it melted the covers. Well, I got the cover. And over time, Jay has got to know a network of reliable meteorite traders. I get messages every day, emails, texts, where people show me pictures and they want me to buy stuff. This has been going on for 15 years. (laughs) Including traders in Morocco who buy directly from nomads crisscrossing the Sahara Desert. The Sahara and Antarctica are where most meteorites get found because they're easy to see in those stark landscapes of sand and snow, hot and cold deserts. Before long, Jay started doing trades of his own too, swapping space rocks that he'd bought privately with big scientific museum collections like the Smithsonian's in Washington, D.C. You know, I'd take like 50 pounds of meteorites with me and then we would do a trade, but it would be 12 hours and it would be grueling because I'd lay it all out and then they'd want to have the ones I wanted. And then I would do a trade and I'd get really cool stuff that no other collector in the world would have. To many of us, they might just look like boring old inanimate rocks, right? But I tell you, do not underestimate the value of a space rock. I've paid as much as probably 400 some thousand dollars for a rock. You're kidding me. And so I'm such a believer in this. 
I love the acquisition of something that is so rare or so impossible. You know, I want to I want to have that and be able to hold it, rub it. Like we touch these meteorites. Where a lot of scientists they want to wear gloves and all that stuff. I'm more into like look at this and like I'd go show kids. There's that amazement factor and market value for wealthy collectors like Jay, but you cannot put a price on the scientific value of space rocks. And here's why. Meteorites are these portals onto the formation of other planets, other worlds, into the mysteries of our universe and the beginnings of the solar system. And so if they're locked away in private collections, could we be missing vital clues about the cosmos, even about the existence of life on other planets like Mars? Well, so back to Black Beauty, that mysterious jet black meteorite that Jay had bought from a Moroccan deal and sent to scientist Carl Agee. It was on the cusp of becoming a rock celebrity. Carl eventually found time to look at it. I put it on the on the saw and I cut into it. And on the inside, this rock didn't look like any other meteorite. I thought, wow, this is something really interesting. It was a mashup of different rocks, an aggregate, what geologists call a breccia. And there are things in the, the sample, especially when you look at it under the microscope, that you can't explain. You'd, it's like, what are these shapes? What are, what are, how did this form? So Carl started sleuthing. He finally classified it. But how exactly do you classify a rock as being from outer space? If you can extract gases out of the rock, that are trapped in the minerals. And it turns out that those gases have isotopic compositions that are identical to Martian atmosphere. That's sort of like the ultimate. But there are all these other lines of evidence that are independent of that. And all those lines of evidence? I mean, it just kept going on and on and on where they would find more and more about it. Started to point to one thing. But you know, occasionally I would, I don't know if it was like I would wake up in the middle of the night or something, but sometimes I would get like, gosh, I wonder if this, I wonder if I'm maybe I maybe I'm wrong. And he waited and waited. And I said, Carl, when are you going to leave town so I could have the uh, press conference? Because <laughs> he was just so much at crossing his T's and dotting his eyes. So at some point it just becomes completely ironclad. You know, it's this unassailable. It's completely no question about it, this is from Mars. Its crystals contained significant amounts of water. It turned out to be water from Mars, and it was 10 times the water of any Martian meteorite. And after we got enough data, then I started to feel confident that this was a new type of Martian meteorite. And when he let that leak out, all the scientists made fun of him. They start getting on him. So why were they making fun of him? Because one year, a scientist got up at the Lunar and Planetary Conference. There was this one that he said, he said, it's for Mercury. And it turned out it wasn't for Mercury. And they just were brutal. It's almost like any scientist that comes out with something that's totally different. It's heretical. And they, they can't just say no. They got to say mean stuff. So Carl held his tongue until he had solid data to back his claim. And then, you know, then we published the paper in Science. That was the beginning. That was 10 years ago this month, and it marked the beginning of Black Beauty's rise to fame and acclaim. Now, there's more to this story that makes this Martian meteorite so damn special. For a start, it was ancient. 
they used radiometric testing, which measures radioisotopes, to find out that it was one of the two oldest Martian meteorites ever found on Earth. The radiometric date that came back was 2.1 billion years. We were very excited about that. Approaching half the age of the entire solar system. Half the age of Earth. But the story gets more interesting. That was just an average age. And remember, Black Beauty was a weird mashup of different rock types. And also, when they dated the age of different grains of zircon mineral crystals inside it, they found something staggering. So they did one grain here of zircon, and it turned out that zircon was 4.4 billion years old. And we were like, what? But then, in the same sample, in the same piece, there was another zircon grain, and that zircon grain had an age of something like 1.5 billion. And they were sitting like within a millimeter of each other. So we're seeing at least two ages that were separated by a couple billion years in terms of their formation, just in this, just in this little piece. So could each of those individual grains and the different rocks inside Black Beauty tell a unique story about the Martian planet's evolution? It looks like now that there's a population of rocks and minerals in Black Beauty that date from the very earliest formation of Mars. 4.5 billion years ago, when it just formed, then also there are pieces of Black Beauty that represent something that happened much later on, on the surface of Mars. Maybe it was an impact from a meteor, maybe it was a volcanic eruption, Maybe it was both, who knows? But there was something that, that changed or created new minerals. And then those new minerals and the old minerals somehow ended up together in the same rock. It's a puzzle that we still don't really completely understand. And it's a puzzle that captivated scientists around the world, including... I'm Aaron Cavolsi. I'm a professor of planetary science at Curtin University in Perth. I love to study things that cause the end of worlds, asteroid strikes and things that cause biological extinctions, basically when space rocks slam into Earth and make big holes in the ground that have reverberations for many, many years beyond the initial event. Space rocks, of course, slam into the surface of Mars too. Black Beauty represents a, a little ambassador of the top of the crust of Mars, the portion of Mars that interacts with the atmosphere but it's all the things in the upper top layer of Mars that have never been sampled before, and so a lot of opportunities are available because of that. So Carl sent Curtin University a teeny tiny sample of black beauty to investigate further. Aaron's PhD student Morgan Cox studied individual grains of zircon inside it. We're talking smaller than a strand of hair. And she analysed 60 zircons out of black beauty, and one of them had the telltale signs of being involved in an asteroid strike. Get this, tiny deformation marks inside the grains of zircon gave it away. Marks that they know only an asteroid can cause. But on a grander scale? There's nothing more violent than an asteroid strike. Large asteroid strikes can flip the crust of a planet inside out. They can cause melting and vaporization. If there's life, God help you, it can cause mass extinctions. And it sends its trash throughout the solar system, hopefully landing some of it on Earth and uh, to where scientists here can pick it up and study it. 
Which begs the question, could Black Beauty offer clues about the existence or extinction of life on Mars? Oh, that's wild. And still at Curtin University, I'm now about to get up close and personal with the rock celebrity itself. That's a bit of Black Beauty. That's a bit of Black Beauty right there, yes. <sighs> the size of a fingernail, all polished up and embedded in a small holder. It's, it's amazing. That's all this team here needs to do, their incredible science. Hi, I am Gretchen Benedicts. I'm a professor of astrogeology in the School of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Curtin University. What do you love about space rocks? They're rocks from space. <laughs> <laughs> they help me understand the evolution of our solar system, our place in it, our connection. My PhD supervisor used to say, it's the poor man's space probe. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, this yeah, is exciting. This is We've walked into such a cool space. It's called the Hive, where we're surrounded by these giant screens which help scientists visualise their data in three dimensions. It feels a little like I'm actually on the cratered surface of Mars. So many craters, so many space rocks have crash-landed on this planet over its more than four and a half billion years. So we can zoom in. And then, and ideally, if you get this to the point where you're actually human-sized walking around in it, then you are a geologist on another planet and able to go, not necessarily knock things down, but you could potentially be a rover driver that way. Wowee. And say, okay, rover, go over there and grab me that and tell me what it is. Maybe the teenagers of today will have that opportunity. <laughs> I don't think it'll be ready for me. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be cool, though? Be Navigating a planet over 130 million kilometres from Earth. So this is showing you on the surface of Mars lots and lots and lots of craters, especially in the southern hemisphere, regions that are much, much older on the surface of Mars. Because over time, these craters build up, and so we can kind of use them as a clock. Using craters as clocks and knowing the age and composition of the different rocks inside the Black Beauty meteorite, Gretchen and colleagues set out to investigate where exactly on Mars, which exact crater it was ejected from about 5 to 10 million years ago, with enough force to end up in orbit, then ricochet through deep space for millions of years, then randomly crashed to Earth in a remote part of the Western Sahara Desert to be found by an African nomad, sold to a Moroccan meteorite trader, bought by a wealthy doctor in faraway Indiana who thankfully had the good sense to pass a sample on to a scientist. I mean, what are the chances? But it's what happened in the billions of years before the meteorite escaped its Martian home that Gretchen wanted to understand. And so her team analysed over 90 million craters on the surface of Mars to do this. Of course, they're only mere mortals, so they've used machine learning algorithms to do that grunt work. And so doing that, we were able to identify two unnamed craters, so craters that mo a lot of craters on Mars have been named, but these were two unnamed craters, which means people haven't been looking at them. So this is the first time they've really been looked at. They were next to a crater that was named. We were able to work out that the timing of the different craters fit with the timing we found in the rock. And so this is the most likely, like 99% most likely source of this rock. 
And in a sweet turn of events, those two Mars craters, one inside the other, are now officially named after two remote towns in Western Australia, Caratha and Dampier. You know, this is uh, an amazing, uh, really clever approach to, to get at where black beauty could have originated. Carl Ag from the University of New Mexico. But it would be even cooler if we can ultimately test it. So I see it as a like a hypothesis at this point. So wouldn't it be cool if we, you know, would put a lander down near the crater that that they propose it is the origin of Black Beauty, and we go there, and sure enough, there it is. There's the there is the same the rock that was sitting right next to it, you know, right on Mars. So that to me, that would be the ultimate if we could prove that. And back peering at the surface of Mars with astrogeologist Professor Gretchen Benedicts. Well, there's three craters here, and the way that Black Beauty goes from being a rock to being a jumble of rocks is via that first crater. The story of the very birth of Black Beauty is unfolding. So Black Beauty started off in its early life, four and a half billion years ago, 4.4 billion years ago, as solid piece of rock, probably formed from a magma or a lava. About 1.3 billion years ago, there was an impact that actually took material from nearby and it made it fall on top of where Black Beauty was. Yes, yeah, so another an asteroid, asteroid hit, hit Mars. Mars. Asteroids hit Mars all the time. You can see from the surface. But then about five million years ago, a big one came along and Black Beauty was in just the right spot. It caused Black Beauty to actually get launched out. So it got enough speed to actually leave the surface of Mars and go into orbit around the sun. But because it was such a tiny little rock, the sun's gravity kind of pulled it towards it. And because the Earth is in between Mars and the sun, the Earth fortuitously got in the way and Black Beauty landed in Northwest Africa. That totally blows my mind. When they found the crater, that was unreal. It blows the mind of Jay Piatek too, the American medical doctor and private owner of Black Beauty. You know, that they were able to to use AI and actually figure out like this may be the crater it came from, wow. You know, I I just love hearing any studies that come out. In fact, Jay is still giving out samples of black beauty to scientists. He's become like this kind of meteor broker. He's even sold a piece to the Pope's astronomer, he tells me. He says the Vatican maintains a large meteorite collection. I just, you know, the uh, Field Museum, I gave them, I think, 100 grams or 150 grams a year ago of black beauty. They came out with a really neat study within six months. And so like they, when I go visit them, we're all friends now. And like, it's like so neat to be able to participate in in that kind of success. And I I have such other rare ones that I'll get once every month, a scientist to write to me and say, Jay, can I have a piece of blank? Instantly, I just cut a piece off and they want like one gram and I'll give them, you know, 20 to 50 grams. So they have something to play with. And, you know, you just give it because they're doing good and it's just going to help everybody. But what about that question we all want the answer to? Was there life on Mars, life beyond Earth? Does black beauty give us any clues about that? 
Well, the minerals inside the meteorite were found to be rich in water. Not so you could squeeze it out like a sponge, but enough to tell scientists like Carl Agee that at some stage the surface of Mars was drenched in water. And when you look at the surface of Mars, we know you can see the signs of dried up deltas and rivers and lakes. This meteorite is a a tangible piece of evidence that supports that idea, but it still doesn't answer the the one question that all, people always ultimately end up asking about is like, was there ever life on Mars, you know? And so wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to, to be able to find evidence for life or microfossils or something like that in Black Beauty? But so far, those have eluded us. No one's found anything yet, you know, but we're still looking. Imagine being there. Imagine being there in that moment and seeing that, that fossil. Well, I still have pieces. I still have significant pieces of black beauty that have never been examined you know quick quick get those samples off the shelf and get get cracking i know definitely going to do that all along at every turn it has shown something that i did not expect we'll see what we find that's part of the adventure for me it's the best meteorite ever you know i've i've classified hundreds and hundreds of meteorites this is the number one so My favourite Martian. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Black Beauty goes by another name, NWA 7034 or Northwest Africa 7034. But as wealthy Western meteorite collectors buy up big time from Saharan nomads and traders, is that stripping Africa of its geo-heritage? And do scientists struggle to get hold of these rocks and reveal their secrets if they're locked away in private collections. Geopolitics and the Arab world's first and first female meteorite scientist, plus more wild collectors. Next on Science Friction, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Email me at sciencefriction at abc.net.au and tell your friends about the Science Friction podcast. I'll catch you bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.